Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the live stream. We are thinking through God's word together, and it is a great day. Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning over heaven and earth. I've been reading through the Psalms recently, specifically thinking and, uh, and meditating on Jesus being the Lord in the Psalms. We tend to use the Psalms as a place to go when things are really hard. We like to find empathy when we're suffering and hope, almost against hope, that God will provide because they did that for David. But flip that around a little bit and look at the positive side. Repeatedly, when Jesus said, or when uh, David says the Lord's going to rescue us, it's full of hope and God's judgment and justice and sovereignty. And we now know Jesus is the Lord. So try that sometime. Read through the Psalms and think about the Lord today doing what the psalmist says. And that'll give you great hope. Jesus is not sitting on his hands watching as the world spins out of control. He is ruling with a rod of iron the nations and bringing the wicked to justice and providing and protecting his people. That's us. So it's a good day. The Lord made this day. Rejoice and be glad in it and drink some coffee or whatever it is that you like. Okay, so we are studying um, hell. And remember, remember the, uh, the Greek word is Gehenna, which is not the same as Hades. It's not the same as Tartarus. It's Gehenna. And what we're going to see today, and probably this will spill into next week, uh, we're going to see the danger of taking a term and giving it a theological definition and then reading that definition into every occurrence of the term. Don't do that. Know the meanings of words as they fit in context. Context is king. So I'm going to lay out my uh, my presupposition, if you will. My uh, Nope, let me say it a different way. I'm going to lay out my working theory. And let's see if the texts that talk about Gehenna prove my theory or disprove my theory. Okay, so that's what we're going to do today. And like I said... Look here over next week, no doubt. So what we've done so far is we've seen two different things. We've seen that the Old Testament rarely talks about anything after death. Everyone's going to Sheol in the Old Testament. It's the grave. It's the place of the dead. It's, it's, it's where the fathers are buried Righteous, unrighteous, everybody goes to Sheol, and we're just not told much about anything after Sheol, after death. The one exception, at least the, the major exception that we looked at yesterday, is in Daniel 12, 2, where the angel tells Daniel, the day is coming, someday, your people, many of your people, Daniel, will rise from the earth some will be judged and given eternal life. Some will be judged and given 
more judgment kind of thing. We looked at that. Apart from that, we don't see much of this in the Old Testament. Neither uh, Sheol nor Daniel 12.2 mention anything about hell or fire or any of that. The second thing we've seen is Gehenna in the New Testament comes from the valley of the son of Hennem, which Jeremiah talked about, Isaiah talked about, I think Ezekiel may have talked about it too. Um, it's the place where Israel, the Jews, were doing gross and heinous acts of wickedness. They were offering their sons and daughters in fire to Baal and Moloch. They were doing the most abhorrent, detestable things, sacrificing to false gods and killing their kids to do so. And God said, I'm going to take this and call it the Valley of Slaughter. And I'm going to burn it. And it's going to burn the, the, the bodies of the corpses will be heaped up on each other. So there'll be so many of them that the worm will not die. Maggots will always have a body to feast on and the fire will burn forever as it burns up these bodies. Now, those are hyperbolic statements, I think. I don't think those are intended to be eternal statements, but it's talking about the vast number of bodies that will be punished by God in this Valley of Hinnom. So that's what we've seen so far. That's, that's right out of the Bible. Then we get to the New Testament, and Jesus uses this word Gehenna in several different places. What has happened in the meantime between the Old Testament and the New Testament, four centuries or so, is the rabbis and the intertestamental literature begins to use this Gehenna as a an imagery for or an image for God's judgment after death. So the actual fire, the actual valley of Hinnom became the place where they took their refuse. Again, they didn't have indoor plumbing, right? They didn't have any kind of uh, toilets, that kind of thing. They had to do something with the feces. So they would take it out to this place and burn it. Uh, when criminals, vile criminals were executed, their bodies were not buried. They were carried out and thrown onto the fire of Gehenna. And it became this, this dump and waste Wickedness were all wrapped up quite literally in this great fire in the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, and that became a symbol of God's judgment. Tracking with me? Okay, so here's my working theory as we look at these texts in the Gospels. My working theory is the threat of Gehenna taken literally is still held out to the Jews. In other words, I think we're going to see some places where Jesus uses the word Gehenna not to talk about eternal condemnation, but to talk about the coming judgment on the Jews in 70 AD and that those who receive God's wrath will be destroyed just like God predicted in Jeremiah and Isaiah. So we're talking physical, temporal judgment and their bodies being burned in Gehenna. I think we're going to see that. That is 
a, 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 a reasonable expectation based on what we've seen from the Old Testament. Then the question comes, does, the, does Jesus, does the scripture ever use Gehenna for something other than that? In other words, when you, based on what we've talked about from the Old Testament, when you see Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, you should think first, not eternal judgment, but temporal judgment, because that's what it means. Again, the worm uh, never dying and the fires at the end of Isaiah, nothing in that context suggests it's eternal fire. It's described as God bringing another nation down and destroying the Jews, burning down the city, burning the temple, and killing masses of people. So that should be our first thought when we see Gehenna or hell. Then see if the context demands that there is another use of the word. All right, so I hope you're tracking with me. The first one we're going to look at uh, is, I think, maybe the most difficult. It's in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. So let me uh, read it for you and then we'll talk about it. So Jesus says, you've heard that the ancients were told, quote, you shall not murder, end quote, and, quote, whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court, end quote. So Jesus says, you've heard this, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Everyone who says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown in prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you've paid up the last cent. All right, so this is one of those passages that is a perennial battleground for between the Reformed Covenant guys and those of us New Covenant guys uh, about the ongoing validity of the law, that kind of thing. And then there's also this question of, is being angry with your brother equal to murder? And so therefore you're a wicked sinner deserving of hell because you're angry at somebody and all that. Well, before we can ask any of those questions, I have some questions that are not with, don't take us down that path. Context, and then I want to force you to pay attention to what's actually said here. This is one of those passages that we come to with all these presuppositions. And I want to help you peel away those presuppositions and just look and see what it says. And then we'll figure out some of the implications maybe. Now, again, this is going to raise all kinds of questions that I'm not going to try to answer because I have a purpose here and I want, I want us to see this in relationship to the idea of hell. Okay. Uh, but let's catch a, a little bit of the context. So again, a hard passage that uh, everyone likes to fight about, but Back up a few verses, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And again, of course, our Reformed brothers grab this and say, See, Jesus did not come to abolish the Ten Commandments. 
Well, Jesus did not restrict anything here to the Ten Commandments. He's using a, a very broad term. I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. So I'm not going to argue with on this. Again, this is not uh, the point of the discussion. I'm just going to tell you what I think you need to know here. The law or the prophets, that's a big sweeping term for everything written in the old, what we call the Old Testament. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. What did the law do to Israel? It was the heart of the covenant, and it's, it gave them blessing or curses depending on whether or not they kept the law. The prophecies, we have been over this time and time again. The prophecies predicted God's wrath on the people of Israel. So Jesus, I think, is saying, at least in part, I didn't come to do away with all those things. I came to fulfill. I came to bring about the curses and the judgment that the law and the prophets predicted. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it's all accomplished. I didn't come to abolish it. I'm coming to fulfill it, to take care of it, to get it done. And again, for the New Covenant guys, we tend to focus simply on the cross here. But I think it's bigger than that. I think it includes the curses on Israel, Jerusalem, the hardening of their heart that Paul talks about in Romans and so on. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's very interesting. Don't have time now. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Strong statement. Some of the reformed guys want to take this immediately to justification by faith. I don't see that in the context anywhere. All right. So with some background, Keith says lost you. Uh, have you all lost me? Is the feed uh, interrupted? Can you give me a little feedback here? Let me know whether you've lost me. I'm going to keep going because even if I am gone, I'll just upload it and you can get it later. But I'd be curious to know if anybody's able to follow along or if you're not. All right. So this takes it to our passage. You have heard the ancients were told. Okay, you've heard this. You've heard that the ancients were told this. You shall not commit murder. Now that is taken right out of the Ten Commandments, right? So Jesus says, look, you know, this is what they were told in the law. You shall not commit murder. And they were also told whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. That's a little bit of, uh, that's one, that's a possible interpretation. It's probably something closer to liable to judgment, which would take place in a court. Um, now that is not a direct quote from anywhere in the, in the Old Testament, not a direct quote from the law, but it's, I think it's a fair summary. Uh, if you commit murder, then you're going to be subject to a trial, and if there are two or three witnesses, then you are going to be judged guilty. All right, so that's, uh, that's pretty simple. That's what they were told. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Same phrase as this. So whatever, however you're going to translate one, you should translate the other. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court or liable to judgment. 
I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother shall be liable to the court or liable to judgment. Okay, so he says, you were told if you commit murder, you're liable. And Jesus says, I'm telling you, whoever's angry shall be liable. The question is, what's the judgment? What's the court? Seems like we have two options. God or man. See what I'm getting at? I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, liable to judgment. Who's judgment? Who's the court? Who's the judge here? Is it God? Is that the point? Is Jesus saying, as is so often taught, you've heard if you commit murder, you'll be liable to the court. But I'm saying if you, even if you're angry, you're still guilty. That would be guilt before God, right? The other option is a human court. Look at the next phrase. And whoever says to his brother, you shall, uh, you good for nothing, shall be guilty or liable to the Supreme Court. Now here our translator is not helping us. This is Sanhedrin. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty or liable before the Sanhedrin. Do any of your translations say Sanhedrin there? This is the, uh, the group that had the authority throughout the Gospels over all the people, and they're the ones that tried Jesus and condemned him, and they kept bringing in uh, witnesses trying to find some way to uh, con- uh, convict him of a capital crime so they could put him to death. That's a Sanhedrin. That is a human court. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't say God. There's no mention of God here. It says if you're angry, you're liable before the court. If you call your brother good for nothing, you'll be liable to the Sanhedrin. It almost sounds like to me. It almost sounds like the Pharisees were clamping down on what we would call free speech. I know that sounds crazy because you've probably never thought of it that way or heard of it that way, but that's the term he used, the Sanhedrin. Why is the Sanhedrin worried about you saying to your brother, you're good for nothing? And if, if this is talking about God, what's the difference between this first court and the Supreme Court? It's Sanhedrin. I think we at least have to explore what this could mean in Jewish categories rather than God. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go to the Gehenna of fire is what this literally says. So based on what I said a minute ago, that by this time Gehenna is the place where they burned refuse, trash, feces, and the bodies of convicted criminals 
Could it be that Jesus is saying something here about if you're angry and you're using these terms to describe your brothers, you're going to be convicted by the Sanhedrin and thrown into the fire after you die? If this is God, then we would expect the next couple of sentences to reveal that, right? What does it say? Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, that's a Jewish context. You're in the temple and you're bringing your offering. And there you remember your brother has something against you. Your brother has a charge against you. Leave your offering before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. So you're there presenting your offering and you realize, oh, I have a brother who's angry at me. Just leave your offering right there and go run to him and be reconciled. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are away with him. Why? Because this is the righteous thing to do. Because God looks at the heart and it's not just about being outwardly angry, but in your heart, if you're angry, God knows it and that's sin and he's going to send you to hell. That's why make friends with your opponent quickly. Is that what he says? No, he says, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you've paid the last cent. There is nothing in this context, apart from the use of the word hell and the definition we bring to it of hell, there's nothing in this context that indicates eternal or even guilt before God. Is there? What am I missing? Show me. Lon says, it's just, is, it's just, I'm sorry, it's Jesus making the statement, not the Pharisees. The Pharisees didn't care about being angry. Um, how do you know that? I, I, I'm not following you. Uh, and which statement are you saying it, it's Jesus? Uh... Jesus is the one saying whoever is guilty before the court, whoever is angry. So I'm not, I'm not tracking with you, Alon. I'm not sure what you're, what you're getting at here. Do you see the difficulty of what is this business here? If this is about offending God and going to eternal hell, make friends with your opponent your opponent at law. So that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge. Is that God? And the judge is going to hand you over to the officer. Who's the officer if, if the judge is God? And you're going to be thrown into prison. What prison? Hell? Truly I say you'll not come out of there until you've paid up the last cent. So when you finally do pay your last cent, you get out of hell? Someone mentioned yesterday, uh, purgatory, 
I don't know if Catholicism uses this passage to justify uh, a belief in purgatory, but if I believed in purgatory, I would, I think. Uh, Lon says, was being angry in the law no, Jesus raised the bar from God's perspective, it appears to me. Yeah, and that's what you've been told, and that's what uh, is the common view, even in New Covenant theology perspectives. What I'm asking you to do is actually look at the text and see if that's what's going on here. Uh, being angry was not in the law, but remember the Pharisees added all kinds of things to the law. And that's the context here. If your righteousness doesn't surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. So, again, I'm just trying to get you to clear away the thoughts that you want to bring to the text and ask the question, where in this is eternal judgment? And if you translate this the way it should be, Sanhedrin, how does that play into it? And if it's not Sanhedrin, if that Supreme Court is God, then what's the first court? And why does Jesus say, you're there at the altar, again, a Jewish thing. Uh, you've heard, probably you've had pastors tell you that if you're taking communion and you remember your brother has something against you, you should not take communion until you go get reconciled. This passage doesn't speak to that discussion at all. Not even a little bit. Because there's no correlation between the Lord's Supper and this altar. That's not the point. So, is it possible? Is it possible here? And I, I really am asking the question. I told you yesterday, I continue to have questions about all these things. And it may sound like I have a conclusion. I don't. I'm just trying to push on something and see, you know, what kind of uh, response there is to see. Uh, I want to find out the truth here. So that's really what I'm doing here. Uh, and I forgot where I was going to go with this. Uh Truth is not relative, says clearly a Jewish legal context and not eternal judgment or punishment. That's sure what it seems like to me. Lot says, I agree it's not eternal judgment, but it looks like he is saying the bar is higher than you've said it. Um, maybe, but if that's the case, then he's saying, I'm raising the bar on you. Therefore, go be reconciled. Otherwise, you're friend will hand you over to the judge and you'll be thrown into prison and you won't come out until you've paid up the last cents. So that's the higher bar. Uh, if you don't do this, if you don't meet this higher bar that I'm setting, then you're going to be tossed into prison and you're going to have to pay up until you, that, the only way you'll get out is to pay up. Doesn't make much sense to me, frankly. All right, our time's up. I'm going to give you some time to chew on that. We didn't get nearly as far as I had hoped to today, but that's okay. Um, so think about it. Uh, and we'll come back next week and continue to work through these. Uh, Ron says, annihilationist theology gets its root here. Um, does it? Hmm. You're going to get out 
You're going to get out, he says, at, or you won't get out until you pay the last cent. That doesn't sound like annihilation to me. So I don't, I don't, I don't know how you would get there. All right. Um, tomorrow, gentlemen, come back. Fridays with the fellows. Talk about manhood, wisdom. The rest of you will see you on Monday as we continue to work our way through these difficult things. Take care.